open source really hasn't found a business model. And it causes a lot of angst because there are contributors who are like, well, I'm contributing all this. Why isn't anybody paying me? And then on the other hand, their developers are like, well, it's open source. Why would I pay them? It is a community more than anything, in my opinion. Why open source started taking away a lot of our business is just that people could install it on their own. Oh, I definitely have opinions here. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. All right, so today we're going to talk about open source. Yes, yes, we are, Paul. That, that was odd. <laughs> so, well, it's been a while. Yeah, it has. Oh my God, how, how long since we put out the last one? Let's let's not even talk about that. We're okay, here today. Okay. Yeah, we're here, we're here to talk about open source. I think the Valencia bus line was still running last time we recorded. Jesus Christ! So the big things that bring open source to mind is well, apart from the extended thought pieces on on open source that it seems everyone is publishing. I've even got a draft. <laughs> There's the Amazon stuff. What did you refer to that as? Strip mining? Was that the word you used? Well, it's not my word. It's what other people are calling it. It's mm-hmm. basically there's some very popular open source projects, mm-hmm. and Amazon is coming along with those as a service, right, right, and just basically taking all the work and in the minds of some not contributing back. Mm-hmm. So this is Elastic and Kafka. Yep. And Mongo. Yep. And there's one more, Redis. Yes. There's probably other companies that are going through like similar concepts, but these were companies that were, I guess, largely open core. Yes. There are also companies that like have varying degrees of relationship to the product that they're selling. Hmm. So the people who own Redis Labs, they aren't the people who who made the technology. Whereas I think in the case of of some of these, that they are like Mongo, the company actually created the technology. Yeah. So there, there's a certain amount of like some of these companies are are putting the investment in the current investments, and some of them also put in the initial investments. And now the cloud providers are coming along. Not all cloud providers. It's almost exclusively Amazon. Is it? Who else? I mean, I guess it kind of doesn't matter, right? Amazon yeah. is so big. So Amazon is coming along, and Amazon made a. Made an actual Redis thing, yep. And then it made a Mongo compatible thing, yep. And then it made an Elastic distribution, yep. Which is essentially a fork, yes. And we don't know what happened with Kafka. Something happened with Kafka. It metamorphed. It, oh no, <laughs> no. It woke up one morning. It's a shiny new butterfly. It's a gigantic bug. <laughs> so you you feel Amazon is is like what? I don't. No, if I feel that, but I know you know some people's opinion is that mm-hmm. there are these open source communities that a lot of work has gone into, mm-hmm. and Amazon is coming along and strip mining, right, and extracting the value and not contributing mm-hmm. back. So it's interesting. If they were contributing back, is that good enough? I don't think it is. I think the root cause, and we we talked about this in an earlier episode about two or three years ago with Nadia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You know, open source really hasn't found a business model. Right, right. And it causes a lot of angst because mm-hmm. there are people who say, usually contributors, who are like, well, I'm contributing all this. Mm-hmm. Why isn't anybody paying me? Right. And then on the other hand, their developers are like, well, it's open source. Why would I pay them? Mm-hmm. So Nadia is coming out with a new report. Remember, she had that report like two, three years ago. She's got a new one that, that's coming out at the end of the summer. 
and I, I ran into her at the weekend and she was telling me about it. And she had some interesting positions that I don't remember enough to quote. This is going to be this great episode. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, like someone somewhere had an opinion. But, this but, company but, that we referenced, so we can't remember what they're doing. No, but this brought a lot of these issues to, to my mind because I've, I've been thinking a lot about open source and, and about like sus- really sustainability of products and how do you make your products sustainable in the long term and how open source is, is one way to do this. I think open source reaches a breaking point. I think capitalism is you know, the best proven model for making a project sustainable. I'll state up front what I mean. Like mm-hmm. the business model where you or customer have a problem, yeah, and you pay a company to provide a solution, right? Provides a really direct yes. relationship. So, so I mean, we we say this obviously as as startup founders, as as people who are able to realize a lot of the value of the creations that we make. I've seen many friends in the dev tool space who've run into trouble because they think that the money the VCs give them is to fund their development without having to then find a further customer. Hmm. And I, 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 I feel one of my skill sets in life is convincing VCs to pay for my fun compiler projects. Well, it's, it's worked out so far. So far, yeah. Well, but I mean, I mean, I don't want to name names, but you know, friends from Heavybit who are like, "Well, I have this cool project." Mm-hmm. Right, and I, it gets turned into a, a company, and perhaps a company that that struggles with a business model. Well, they can get a seed round because there are some hot shot out of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, without thinking too hard, I can think of at least. Four companies who got easy three to six million dollar seed yep. rounds, and then it's like, well, I just thought I got funded. So I guess what you're talking about is is that open source has various business models. Does it? Well, sort of. There's the open core. There's services. People don't like services. People have been gravitating towards the open core. Well, services doesn't provide VC level returns. Well, exactly. I mean, services. I mean, I started off as a consultant. It's it's a it's a body game. Yeah. It's like it's like you pay somebody, you know. I was a fresh graduate. I got paid the equivalent of gosh, I got paid sixty k a year, mm-hmm. and I got billed out at three hundred dollars right. an hour, and they made the money on the spread. Yeah, but there's no multiple there. Yeah, what is the Kubernetes company? Heptio. Heptio just got acquired for six hundred million. They didn't publicly release it, but I heard it was in that range. Yeah, and they were a company of of relatively small single digit million. In income, I think but they were they were the the hot shit in the hot space, and VMware needed the hot shit in the hot space, so they got venture returns for what I understood to be a services company. I think they got the money in uh, Joe Beta, who was a CTO and had started Kubernetes. Right, right, right. So there was basically, I'd say, a very expensive aqua hire. They weren't doing it for the revenue; mm-hmm. they were doing it for six hundred million, though. If you're if you're VMware and you're about to get left behind in the container wars, yeah, you're, yeah. I mean, like it's it's like Facebook buying Instagram, right? Or um, Microsoft buying GitHub. Yeah, it's like well, the alternative is to get left behind. This right. might seem expensive, but I mean, nobody wants to be the Sun Microsystems. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the services model, I agree, doesn't doesn't tend to have the the VC returns. I'm but not that, saying that it's bad. No, no, I, but I, I agree with you. In fact, that that was the point I was getting at. So the model that remains is open core. And Amazon has just taken a nice pick to to yeah. open core. I, I think let's go back for a second to uh, something that I get asked a lot is bootstrapping versus VC money. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any value judgment that you know people throw around the word lifestyle business pejoratively, but mm-hmm. like if you're making a nice services business and making forty percent returns every year, mm-hmm. that's awesome. 
I am I am extremely pro whatever business model is your favorite. However, I will add, and I think I think it comes in here. A thing that doesn't come up when people talk about lifestyle businesses, or I'm going to talk bootstrap businesses, yeah. which is less pejorative, versus VC-backed businesses, is that certain companies have business models that work for those companies. So you're often looking for this fit between founders and business model, yep. but there's also a fit between product and business model. Yes. So a very obvious thing is Dark could not have been built yeah. without VC. We're biting off so much that that you can't really do it as a lifestyle business. It's it's funny. So, uh, Launch Darkly, our company has been around for about five years now. Mm-hmm. Do you like my Launch Darkly T-shirt? Oh, I lo- I'm so happy you wore it again. It's it's getting a little frayed. Maybe I should give you a new one. Yeah, I think so. One of our first ten customers, the product manager left, and he wants to start an API business. Mm-hmm. So he wanted advice from me. Okay. And he asked about bootstrapping versus taking VC money. Mm-hmm. And for us, I mean, it was a year before we had anything sellable. Yeah. And that was a year after like we had an idea, we had a yeah. concept, we were talking to people who wanted to use it. Yeah. Yeah. And we had people in early beta, but it just took us a year. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't think we could have put Well, I mean, with open source, a lot of these businesses are bootstrapped on another company's dime by open source. Yeah. So like they they're at this point possibly where they've got tens of thousands, maybe maybe even millions of installs of of some kind. Before the company is founded, I think though people sometimes confuse installs with customers. Yes, I, I think so. And also, I mean, we, we talked about this when Armin was on with Glenn mm-hmm. Solomon. People think, oh, open source, you just go immediately viral. Mm-hmm. I mean, Armin was talking about how they got 100 downloads yeah, yeah, in I their mean, first they, year. Right. Like a year. Right, right, right. But again, that, like, that was something where Mitchell was this hotshot. Because he had made Vagrant, mm-hmm. and then he—I think he spent quite some time building up a brand. Uh, I don't think it was HashiCorp's brand, but like you know, his own brand before HashiCorp, and then even then, they still had to spend time and, and building the the usage up. Yeah, it wasn't an instant hit, right? MongoDB went through a similar sort of thing. Like it's you know, it, it really worked at this at this thing and made. For all of its faults, which which are many, uh, and I'm still bitter, but it brought a lot of innovation to the database game, most specifically that usability matters. Yeah, I think that's the most underrated thing in open right. source. So Mongo did all this work in bringing you know, databases, and there is a need for companies that innovate or for for people to who, who innovate to see returns on that innovation. Oh yeah. Whether whether it's paying the VCs back or you know in, in open source, a lot of the innovation pays off in some way. Perhaps you're employed to work on it. Perhaps you are, you know, the high status. Perhaps like companies want early experts in this particular technology that's going to be hot, and you got into it early, and so now you get all the cool consulting jobs. Like there's payoffs of some kind, and the payoff that infrastructure. And database companies have tended to see is the payoff from essentially reselling compute. Yeah, and that's going away. Yeah, well, I mean, the original genesis of a lot of open source was a revulsion against, at the time, the monopoly practices of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Of well, we have three thousand engineers, mm-hmm. and you just have to pay us a license fee. Right. Okay. And so a lot of open source was this revulsion of, mm-hmm. hey, we will assemble three thousand engineers. Mm-hmm. 
from all your competitors, right, right, and build something else. Mm-hmm. And now, like you said, well, that succeeded to a certain point, and now people are taking those assets and using them for business purposes. Right. There's been a sort of a co-option of the the freewheeling idealist open source uh, slash free software. Yeah. Foundations of the what the eighties, nineties. Yeah, what it was very much, uh, I'd say, against Microsoft, and now Microsoft itself mm-hmm. has done a one eighty and is a huge fan of open source. Right, right, right. Yeah, the I, I remember in the I guess early two thousands was my was my first like experience with open source stuff, and like Microsoft was the enemy. Yeah, I mean you were at Mozilla. Right, exactly. I yeah, mean, you yeah. were, you were, uh, you know, uh, IE must die. Yeah, I was, but uh, I mean, I was also a, you know, Windows must die. I'm, you know, Debian user in what 2002, I guess, is is my first Debian install. Uh, the first issue in Ubuntu. You were using Debian back. Using is a strong word. <laughs> the, I did most of my uh, development in college on a Sun machine. SSHing in via PuTTY on the Windows lab machines, uh, which I think is what we all did at the time, basically. But a couple of years later, everyone was using Linux machines, but we didn't have home internet, so my lovely Linux machine just like wasn't really that usable uh, with its not internet. You didn't have home internet. I went to college in uh, to ninety nine to two thousand three. Was like there there wasn't really. I, mean, I, I don't know if there was even a phone line. Like what would it? Yeah. I, I'm stifling so many. I know, I know. I worked in tech support for an internet service provider, and I didn't have home internet. <laughs> but I mean, I lived next to college. I spent all my time in college. Like, what would I do with home internet? Yeah, I remember. Um, I would go to the computer lab just because I did have a computer in my dorm room, but mm-hmm. it just wasn't as nice as the ones in the lab. I mean, we literally spent all of college hanging around the lab. That was uh, the kids don't do that anymore, don't they? I mean, that makes sense. They. I mean, they're they're all like on their I don't know snap goggles, <laughs> like doing VR programming. Oh my god, we're so old. <laughs> okay, the whole idea of like staying up all night in the lab, I, I think it's just people don't do that anymore. I know, I, I've slept in the lab multiple times. Oh yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember I would, I would stay up all night and then take like a cat nap between six to eight and then go to class. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so so back then, like open source was. Like it was really about freedom, and and people had had various opinions and fought all the fucking time on Slashdot about which version of freedom was the correct version of freedom, and I feel that in open source today there's almost no discussion of that. Like the Free Software Foundation version of freedom is gone essentially. In retrospect, they were probably more correct than anyone. Like exactly what they predicted would happen is what happened, but no one cares. Because what people really wanted, and there's a there's a blog post today that Steve Klabnik, the Rust dev evangelist, formerly, talks about like what you know what is open source and what a lot of people want from open source is the ability to use it, the ability to like produce things. So where we ended up with open source is it is a community more than anything, in my opinion. It's it's a way of like getting yourself status in the community and uh, you know people don't think of status uh, or people think of status as maybe a negative thing but I mean it more in the in the fundamental human condition sort of sense I'd say also in the mid 2000s um so I was at vignette which was a content management platform and at the time a P- we had a whole staff of solution engineers just mm-hmm. to do POCs Okay. So you would do a three month, six month POC. Yeah. Which is just basically to install the software and show the customer that it even installed. 
Yeah. I mean, this is in the the hell of like um, the supported platform matrix of like Susie. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what version of Oracle, and even what version of your apps are. Right. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. Bad times. Yeah, I managed to support a platform matrix. People keep asking, like, why why does Docker matter? And it's like, you need to kind of remind them of of two thousand and six. Yeah, if, to... if it's like, okay, what flavor of uh, Sybase that some right, huge right. client uses works with which version of Linux? Why open source started taking away a lot of our business is just that people could install it on their own. Right. They didn't have to get solution engineers on site. Mm-hmm. They could just get. Open source content management and just start using right. it. So, and so it we, wasn't that it was necessarily better. It was just like they're like, I don't want to have to work through these six month hell cycles. So, so here's the thing that today there are things that are easier than that. And well, I'd say that's why SaaS came along, and because right. e- like open source is great because it's like the developers like no longer I'm beholden to these kind of jerk SEs. Right, 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 right. I could just get it myself. So, so I think this is like a fundamental thing that like usability. The installability is the thing that matters, and open source to so many people is just a distribution channel. It's a way of getting your software into the hands of people, and then there's multiple different ways of, of approaching it. But if you're Amazon, you already have that. Yeah. Like you already have this this giant thing, and people can use it. And Amazon products aren't exactly the most usable, but they're certainly accessible. I'd say the APIs have taken and I'd say improved on what people wanted from open source. Okay. So the, a lot of why people liked open source as a consumer mm-hmm. was a that they weren't beholden to a tech giant, and b that they could get it. Well, the beholden matters, I think. Well, and, well, so c, I'd yeah. say there's a whole API economy now of Twilio, mm-hmm. Stripe, where it's like, okay, I don't have to install anything; I just get easy access in a second. Oh, I definitely have opinions here. Yeah. Well, and, and I'd say that's the same root itch that open source was originally mm-hmm. was. I don't have to go through some. Huge right. IT cycle. I can just start using it, right? And like I'd, I'd say, to even looking around the the heavy bit clubhouse, like README, mm-hmm. instant APIs, right? So I think that that may be the downside of of the APIification and, and how it relates to open source is that people feel very strongly that they want to be able to take what it is they are doing with the person they are paying and do it somewhere else if something goes wrong. So, like, if the person pisses them off, vendor lock-in is is exactly what I'm talking about. And APIs don't provide this, but you know, when you're looking at the AWS products, it, it kind of goes both directions. People are locked into Elasticsearch. Yep. And Amazon therefore needs to provide an Elasticsearch because otherwise, people can't move to the cloud and hit Jeff Bezos's dream of being our king. Finally, I thought he already was. Mostly, yeah, it's his world. We're just shopping in it. Mm-hmm. So APIs make it easy, but Amazon also makes it easy, or you know, cloud providers or SaaS providers also like make it very easy to to do these things that that had been hard to do before. Well, I think the reason why some people liked open source was this community-driven thing. Yeah. The reason why other people liked it was this perception that it was free and easy to use. Yep. And now Amazon has basically picked up. The easy to use. Mm-hmm. It's like I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of people do not want to install and run right. basic functionality. Yeah, like we've talked about this before. I have this theory that value moves further and further up the stack. Like people, in fact, mm-hmm. do not want to really run a lot of core services. Right. So, so this is kind of interesting. So when we look at what open source is, so we've established it's it's not the same as it was in our in our youths, and it's. it's I'm mo- still in my youth. <laughs> 
And community is, is a large part of, of what it means to be open source. Uh, lack of vendor lock-in is another one. The distribution channel is another reason. And the things that we haven't really talked about that, that, that are related to all this is sort of like the downsides from the whole thing, like the maintainer sustainability. Something and, you didn't explicitly mention even is the idea of being able to tinker. Okay. Which I think actually right. happens less and less now. Yes, that's very interesting. Like one of the original ideas of open source was that you, as a contributor, could you know, um, you know, the old saying like, show up with code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it called? The the, the nuclear option, the the fourth, the fourth right or whatever it is, is like being able to fork. Yeah, and I think that is actually gone. You pretty much can't fork things for societal reasons more than anything else. Because in order to fork, so, so let's say someone suggested recently that we should fork Elm because Elm made a decision moving from 18 to 19 that that didn't work for us. But we were never going to fork Elm. That would be ludicrous because then we would have to build this other community yep. and we'd be doing it without the thing that makes Elm Elm. So instead, people are given the choice. You have the choice of being on and off the train. Yep. You can contribute. You can maybe affect the direction, and when you look at why large companies are paying so much money for people to work on open source, it's it's so that they can control yeah. the direction of the train. So the forking is gone, and you look at at GitHub, and you see like mountains of issues, where people are complaining or making issues, but aren't fixing. Yeah, I'm not actually sure how much tinkering is going on. I mean, I'd say. That was the original dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, a million eyeballs makes bugs shallow. Yeah, I think there's fundamental issues about how open source is structured that makes it hard for people to tinker. So, do you mean that that sort of community dynamic, or or something else? I think this is a, a fork that we should abandon. Well, no, no, because I, I I think this is actually this is actually kind of good because I think it relates to the fundamental changing of open source because. Back in the day, the 90s, right? All that it took to make an open source project that people wanted to use was that you put it on fresh meat. Yep. Right? You distributed the tarball and then and then people would show up and use it or not use it. And what's different today is is that the ecosystem has other needs. We're drowning in software that solves the problem that we're looking for. And the things that we need are like documentation and usability and things like like how do we actually run this thing? How does it get produced and and security updates and and, and all this other stuff. And there's a need for a lot more leadership and a lot more other intangibles that aren't just code. Yeah, my uh, pointy-headed boss viewpoint is mm-hmm. that the idea of open source is basically screw the rest of the org. All we need is some really bright developers. Mm-hmm. And that is a position that I used to hold as a developer. You know, like the bullshit walks, show up with code, we don't need this product manager, UE right, designer, right. Or QA or doc person. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't need salespeople, we don't need marketing. We sure as heck don't need HR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or finance. Oh, oh my god. The HR one is interesting because the I think I think open source needs HR. I think uh, there's a lot of a lot of lessons needed in like playing nice with others. Oh yeah. Oh. It's like, uh, and then and then so it devolved into, we'll show up with code or not. So it's mm-hmm. like you have unusable UIs. Yeah. You have two people that don't get along and no way to resolve it. Yeah. When we think of 
you know, open source leaders, we're thinking of Linus, who's an asshole. Yeah. Stallman, who's like creepy and ooh. And like ESR, who's just like fucking crazy tan over there. We didn't have good role models for, for this community that we built for ourselves, is, is what I'm saying. And as a result, and perhaps many other contributing factors, we have this sort of like place that when you when you perhaps look at the values of the community, you you kind of like it's not the most enticing place. Yeah. I mean there's been the famous wars like with Node about whether they even needed a code of conduct. Oh, we went through some sort of code of conduct thing recently where there was like I don't want to name the project, but a a community was forming around a couple of projects and someone made the inevitable, let's have a code of conduct. And someone responded by like We don't need no stinking. No, no, writing their own code of conduct on the fly to avoid, you know, the, the sort of one that everyone else has established on. It's funny because they have two conflicting worldviews. Mm-hmm. One is uh my high school had this saying like verbum sap set. What does that mean? A word to the widest is sufficient. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's not how humans work. Or which was basically like uh, my, my it's like an sc- honor code sort of bullshit. Well, my secondary school, like it was from twelve year olds up, and like you could go off campus. Uh-huh. They didn't take attendance. Yeah. Like uh, you could call your teachers by your first name. You picked your own classes. Okay, yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. And we had about a thirty percent complete failure rate of people who just could not handle that at all. Wow. Yeah, I mean that that's real. Because like if you can go off campus all the time, some people are like. Well, I'm gonna right. go get some slushies from Seven Eleven. Like slushies, that's that's adorable. I was assuming that they would go off and do drugs. <laughs> I was not which cool is, enough. Which is what to happened get... in my high school. <laughs> I was not cool enough to be in that crowd. Right, right. But so you had the kids like me who were like, okay, I can take a ton of classes and graduate when I was sixteen. You finished high school when you were sixteen. Yeah. Holy shit, Edith. Yeah. Oh, as valedic- as valedictorian. Oh, whoa, wow. Yeah. Very impressive. But and then we had people who were just did. A, Slushies. Mm-hmm. Why did you point at me when you said that? Well, because you said it was adorable. Oh, okay. So, like, I, I used to think people didn't need a code of conduct, and the older I am, I'm like, yes, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, ju- just like from running companies, you start to see that, like, it takes a, a lot of extremely explicit work, like, to have a good culture and to have a good vibe and to just, like, for everyone who are in this room to work well together. And just stuff you assume people know. Yeah. Like when we got our first interns in, one of them would make a huge mess in the kitchen and then just leave it. Oh. And it turned out that, like, you know, he had been at high school or college when you made a mess. It's like, well, the janitor will come clean it up. <sighs> and we're like, no, like we have a, a cleaning person come to do like overall deep clean. But like, if you spill some coffee, you need to right. grab some paper towels and. Clean up. Uh, the, the, some metaphor there for open source. Well, but just some basic stuff where, like, okay, yeah, this is yeah. on us to train these people. Right. Training college grads to be humans. That's what our companies do. Well, just later, like, um, it's just basic stuff that, like, you just assume people know and they mm-hmm. don't. So I find that the biggest one in open source is that people don't know how to communicate to other people, especially over the medium of text, which is the unfortunate medium that is chosen by all of them. Tell me more. I mean, you know, you send someone an email. They send you an email. You send it back. Suddenly, you you are in a flame war. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you you hate each other. You don't even know this person, and you read their words with you know a different way than they they intend their words to be read because text is fundamentally uh, lossy, and you don't know very much about these humans, and so you're you're just like you don't know how to read the things that they say in the way that they intended. So you read it in 
whatever you assume based on your own life experiences. And then you have a dysfunctional community where people are being assholes to each other and all of them think it's everyone else's fault and it is everyone else's fault but it's also their fault because just humans are hard. I have a rule, like if there's two exchanges which seem hostile, I stop emailing. I'm like, we need to get on the phone. Oh, yeah, that's that's good. I think, like, I think, and even better is in person. It's just like, yeah. hey, something is getting dropped here. Like, I have started to assume that everything is a misunderstanding. It's just, yeah, like, I mean, like something yeah. is being misunderstood. Let's get on the phone and sort this out. Yeah, uh, I, I think I've I've the same sort of thing. I'm like, uh, so many times I just write. I think we must be misunderstanding each other because, you know, the thing that you say is batshit crazy. <laughs> Therefore. There's probably a set of of worldviews that we are approaching this problem from and this conversation from that leads us to have different interpretations. And there could be so many things going on. It could be that like they just found out that their dog is sick or their mom is having surgery or like they didn't sleep much and they typed it in a hurry. Right, 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 right. They typoed a single word and it came up as much more aggressive than they intended. They tried to use an emoticon and it just went completely flat. Right, right, right. They they used the emoji from the Apple character set, but it displayed to their messenger on the Microsoft character set. And the smiley face with a slight grimace had a much more aggressive tone than they had intended it to have. Or they thought they were being sarcastic and cheeky. Mm-hmm. And it just went completely wrong. I think open source is still looking for product market fit. I mean it's 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 had a you know a hard pivot from the Free Software Foundation version of it to the OSI version of it. I think it's undergone a slow pivot to more of a sort of a commons, but I think what we're seeing is the open core method of getting value out of open source contributions is going away. And even beyond that, I mean, we touched very briefly on it, but the burnout by like uh, the popular mm-hmm. single person or two right. person projects, where they're like, "Well, I'm doing this because I love software. Why aren't I getting paid?" So there's a couple of companies that are that are dealing with this or that that are trying to solve this problem. So there's this Tidelift and there's DevFlight. Have you heard of either yeah. of them? Yeah. So there appears to be some sort of some sort of backlash against Tidelift that I didn't follow. There is an extremely thriving business mm-hmm. just in cataloging open source projects that a company uses. Yes, and one would assume that this could then be used to funnel money to them but, in some method. But no, they're just like, hey, <laughs> we're making money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why give it back? Yes. Yeah, so there's this problem of like sustainability, and you know, the maintainers want to be paid. There's almost like a unionizing of of open source going on, and I think fundamentally. The thing that we have been calling open source in the form that it's been in for, I'm going to say, the last three years or so, I think everyone's just coming to the realization that it's broken. Yeah. Well, it's the old penny gap problem. Have you heard of this? No. If people are used to being, if something free, it is extremely hard to get them to pay something. Like so, the most. I think that's only one of the problems. Also, well, the the most famous thing is like so Amazon, they sold so much more when they did free shipping. Mm-hmm. In France, for uh, legislative reasons, they had to charge something. Okay. So they charged a penny. Okay. So they had this really interesting A/B test where they could literally see what their sales had been oh, like wow, before okay. and after. Yeah. It was a huge drop, like when they started having to charge a penny, even though it was just a penny. Right. It's just perceptions of their value changed. And the relationship to open source. Well, people are used to paying free. Yeah. If you're used to something so, being free, it's very hard to get people to start paying for it. I mean, that's what parking is struggling with. Right. 
Okay, we recognize that, that that open source is broken, and one of the ways that people are trying to make people pay for it is like saying that maintainers deserve to be paid. And you're saying, yes, but companies kind of don't have to. Yeah, it's, it's just right. Like, it's just like yeah, there, there's no one. I'm not saying that they shouldn't. Yes, yes. I, I'm so, not. I'm not making right. any moral judgment. I'm just saying that like. So it's, it's funny. A, I, I wrote a blog post about this that went absolutely nowhere. No one read it. But the point of it was that open source needs salespeople. Well, and they they also need procurement and sales. It needs like a thing where a human goes to a company and says, "You are using this software, and this software needs money, and you have some sort of existential risk, and you need to send money its way, or you are going to have some sort of existential risk." And and then you get into the non technical side of the business, which says, "Okay, can you fill out the security questionnaire? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you GDPR compliant?" Right, right. Well, I mean, then you're just like, well, you know, there's all these concerns that I have, so I may as well run it on Amazon. I'm not going to trust this this guy. Elastic.co. Who's heard of this company? Yeah. I, I, I want the one that Amazon runs. So this gets back to product market, which I think there's a fundamental mismatch, and I'm not saying which is right or wrong between how, like, uh, I'll pick a fictional um, German railway wants to buy software mm-hmm. versus how people want to sell it. Right, because people want to write code. Yeah, and yeah. then German Railway says, "Are you compliant with this regulation? Right. Have you passed this sock thing?" So, are you saying that like there is a need for companies to exist in order to solve these problems? Eh, I'm not sure. I'm just saying, okay. like, the more I sell software, the more I realize that like there's a lot more to mm-hmm. successful software selling than just coding. Yeah, I mean, with CircleCI, like we saw, there was a ton of open source competitors. And the value that we provided to, to companies partially was that they didn't have to use them. But even when like we, we had competitors who were open source, you know, in a lot of cases people were just like not factoring that in because they wanted the thing that solved their problem the best, not necessarily the, the thing that had like the highest minded ideals. Oh, also like they want to know that you'll be in business. Right, yeah. I mean there's there's nothing like giving someone money to to help them stay in business. And it's funny because the original idea of open source was based around the concern that the company would go out of business and you wanted to have the source code. Right. And, I mean, and I, this was kind of the heyday of you used to have to escrow code. Yeah. Because there was the idea that, like, hey, if for whatever reason uh, you go out of business, we want to yeah. be able to take the code back. So I, I think that was true in, in a couple of cases. I think what has changed a little bit today is this recognition that if the company goes out of business, you are not going to be able to run the software that they made. No, no. If AWS went out of business, like right, yeah, like AWS could open source everything, like down to their, you know, microcontrollers, and there isn't the ability of someone to take that and run it. But even even LaunchDarkly, which is how many people? Eighty, hundred, a hundred ish, hundred ish. All right, so let's say fifty percent of that aren't in direct software roles uh, or development roles. Presumably, it is hard to run. Oh yeah, the I mean, the thing that you make. Oh yeah, I mean we have knockoffs all the time now. Yeah. And it's it's funny because they 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 just pop up and they're like, well, you know, we're cheap and easy, and it's yeah. like, well, right, it's hard to make this software. <laughs> like, it's hard to it's hard to scale it. It's hard to keep it operational. Yeah, I mean, we do two hundred billion features a day. Right, and even if you're a team which is only using, you know, a handful of 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 the the you know, the subset of features that you made, if you open sourced your product, there would be. You know, someone trying to run it and just like not really having any ability to keep that software going. I mean, at its heart, what we really are is a real time database. Right, right. Which is massively distributed. Yeah. We have the same problem with Dark that like 
the biggest value of Dark is just that we run the infrastructure. And running infrastructure is hard, but is also much, much easier than creating software for other people to run on their infrastructure reliably, which is just like extremely, like t- 10 times as hard, I'm going to say. So I think our main conclusion from this whole thing, and we, we probably need to finish this up, open source is broken. Open source is still looking for product market fit. I like my formulation better. I think there is something there. I think open source is successful, but it's still looking for a successful way to monetize itself so that maintainers don't get burnt out and companies are not doing abuse of the comments. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Baker of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. 